Have you ever played the what if game? What if I had done this? Maybe my life would be different. If only this had happened, then this could have happened. If only I'd silenced my cell phone, then that wouldn't have happened. And you live with regrets all the time. Well, John Maxwell, has um, he's an author, written like 60-something books. Uh, he's about 65 years old, and he has a sign on his desk that says this. Yesterday ended last night. And he said this, this saying reminds him that regardless of how badly I failed, that doesn't have to impact today. And he said, regardless of how many of my goals I've accomplished in the past, that doesn't necessarily affect today. He says, I want to live in the power of today. So today I want to talk to you about the power of today. This whole series is really about the power of each day that you live and making the most of it. I want you to look at a... Uh, a different translation of a very famous verse. Jesus was asked, um, you know, what's the greatest commandment? We'll look at the message translation of this verse, Mark twelve thirty. So love the Lord your God with all your passion. You've probably heard it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look how this says, love the Lord your God with all your passion, with all, and prayer, and intelligence, and energy. We're talking about being passionate people. And, and really what we're talking about, there were four things that Jesus did when he knew there were only 30 days that he had left to walk this earth. He lived passionately. And we're going to talk about that today as being a passionate person. God feels deeply. You were made in the image of your creator. You're made in the image of God. And so regardless of your personality, God wants you to feel things deeply. He wants you to be passionate about things. doesn't matter if you're extroverted, introverted. It does not matter. God created you with the capacity to feel. And some of you are saying, well, I'm not passionate about anything. No, you're wrong. Because you were created in the image of God. God feels things passionately. And he has designed you to feel things passionately. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this said about you, but I've heard it many times. You are your father's child. Now, usually it was not said in a good way. It was when I did something that reminded my mom of my dad and she didn't like it. You are your father's child. But I have watched my kids do something completely goofy, just something silly and, and for no other reason but to try to get a life, get a life, get a laugh and a life. And Janie will say, you, that is just like your dad. And I kind of smile and I think, they can't help it. Genetically, they're a combination of me and Janie. And Janie comes from the gardener side. If you know the gardener side of the family, they're goofy. We have some, some other gardener side. We've got Rachel Cousin and Jesse. And they're just goofy. And, and the Washburn side, we're nuts. We're in left field. You put Gardner and Washburn together, you got no hope of being a normal person. And so whether my children like it or not, they are a combination of their mother and father. They are like their parents. The reason sometimes you and I lose our passion in life, the things that God created us to be passionate about, is because we forget whose we are. That we were created in the image of a passion-feeling God who wants us to be passionate about life. Uh, I want you to look at this uh, verse in Romans twelve eleven. It says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's on your listening guide, right? Circle that word, keep. Because this indicates to me that it's something you can lose. Your passion, your spiritual fervor. You can lose it. You have to work at keeping your passion. Problems and pressures in life are designed by your enemy and God's enemy to drain the passion out of you. And we have to work at keeping it in our lives. It'll, we'll, be, we'll lose every bit of passion for life if we're not careful. Now, if you've got one of these books, the, the One Month to Live books, tomorrow or the next day, I think it's day eight, 
um, Howard Thurman's quote is in the very first of the chapter, and it says, Don't ask what the world needs. This is awesome. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Wouldn't you agree? How, how awesome would it be if every Walmart employee was alive? And we got a lot of Walmart employees, and I'm going to... They're frustrated. Yes, they've lost their passion because of us. That's, that's really why they've lost their passion for life. Uh, so, well, yeah, you got the man and you got us. and Okay. Um, but anyway, but just imagine if everybody you encountered during the day lived passionately, were doing what they were passionate about, that would affect us in some way. Now, it's easier to, to say that we're going to be passionate about life than it is to be passionate about life, right? How many of you tend to, be, to have an overcrowded schedule? Right? I think a lot of us do that. Um, how many of you feel like right now you don't have enough time to get done today what you need to get done today? How many of you are just too tired to raise your hand? Okay, you need, all of you, need this series one month to live because we've got to ask the right types of questions if we're going to get the right type of answer. Dr. Richard Swenson has a book called Margin. And he says that margin is the difference between your load and your limit. And I think that most of you raised your hands, your limit is, has been surpassed. And that's why you're not passionate about your life or you're not passionate about anything, about your marriage, about your job, about your children, about your life. is because you've exceeded the limit. The less margin you have in your life, the less space you have in your life, the more stress it will create. And, and then you'll have less passion. It's kind of like this. Put that on the screen. It's like trying to read a book with no spaces between the words and no margins on the page. It's kind of frustrating, isn't it? It kind of freaks you out to try to read that, doesn't it? I saw you were like, what? What's that say? Some of you read it faster than others, but it's frustrating. Without margin, sentences are all compressed together. And it's frustrating to try to read that sentence. It's just as frustrating to live a life with no margin, with no space. Because it will drain the uh, passion out of you. When I put just a little margin in, a little space in my life, everything begins to make sense, and I start to do the things that God created me to do, and my passion returns. But most of us live our lives without any margin whatsoever. No margin physically. How many of you are exactly where you want to be, weight-wise and in shape-wise? Cardio-wise, yeah. Anyone? You just don't want to be a freak. Anybody? Surely there's at least one. You're right where you want to be? Okay, there's one. Two. Right where you want to be. We don't get enough rest. We don't eat right. We don't exercise. We have no margin in our schedules. We have no margin in our finances. We live from paycheck to paycheck. We have absolutely no margin in our lives. And then we wonder why we feel stressed and we lose our passion for living. I don't know if you saw this old movie, uh, Father of the Bride. Steve Martin is just, he's comedy of errors. He's, he's, a, he's a picture of a, a frustrated, stressed out dad and on the wedding day, he says the one thing he wanted to do was to kiss the bride. And, and all kinds of errors have happened. And he's not been able to kiss her after the wedding. And he's chasing her. Watch this scene and then we'll talk about our Bible verses for the day. Where's my dad? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen him. Should I throw it? Oh, 
she was gone. My Annie was gone, and I was too late to say goodbye. Now, of course, she calls before she leaves, but if one of y'all leave and you don't kiss me goodbye, I'm going to whoop your husband. Um, I was frustrated watching this movie. It's not one of my favorite movies because it just drives me crazy. But the reason I showed you this, the crowd that was in his house, and he was trying so desperately to get to his daughter. There's actually a scene in the scripture that's very similar to that. It's in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is in the middle of a packed house, and people are everywhere. But the one who most needed to be there couldn't get close to him. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this, uh, but they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the, the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive you. And then he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now, nothing was going to stop these guys from getting their friend to Jesus. I think we all need a few more friends like that. They thought, Jesus can help our friends, so we're going to go to Jesus. Nothing's going to stop us. And they wanted to get their friend to Jesus because they knew Jesus was the only one who could heal them. Back then, they could, they could have gone to doctors, but they didn't have a whole lot of money. And the doctors couldn't do a whole lot of things. They didn't have surgeries, things like we can do today. And so they said, this man, Jesus, we've heard about him. He can fix our friend. We're going to go to Jesus. But they found out they had a problem in verse 19 when they got there. Who invited all the people to church in a house? Come on. The crowd got in the way. And the worst thing about a crowded life is it will keep you from being, getting close to Jesus. It will keep people in your life who need you close to Jesus from getting them to Jesus as well. I can always tell in my life, when my life gets too crowded, I start going through the motions in my relationship with Christ. And I kind of become numb. I, be kind of, I kind of exist in my relationship with Christ. And my passion dries up. It's probably the greatest sin in our church. Is people existing not living the life that God designed them to live, a life without passion. The crowd will keep you from Christ, and a crowded life will keep you from Christ. If you want to recapture your passion today, I'm going to give you some keys. There's four things that you need to do, the same things these guys did. First thing, if you want to regain your passion, is to do something drastic. The verse says, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on a mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. They tore a hole in the roof. Now just picture this scene. It's so crowded in here. Jesus at the front. Nobody can get there. They went up on the roof. Now in, in their day, they would build houses with flat roofs. And it was made with, with um, straw and, and mud and all this kind of stuff that they would make bricks. And so they decided to go right through that. And... and Whenever your life gets overcrowded, you can't expect to do just a couple of little bitty things. I'm going to tweak this here. I'm going to tweak this here. And I'm going to get closer to Jesus. You have to do something drastic like these friends did. You've got to stop and you've got to do something um, because we naturally gravitate towards the overcrowded lifestyle. If you're going to restore passion in your life, you've got to ask a drastic question that we've started last week asking. What would I do? What would be different in my life if I just had 30 days to live? 
Now, today I could teach you some time management principles, but honestly, you don't need time management. You need life management principles. And anytime I've been with somebody who's coming to the end of their life, they realize they've only got a certain amount of time left. Work and all those things aren't nearly as important. What becomes major important to them is relationships. Suddenly people are set free. They say things that they've always wanted to say to people. They do things they've always wanted to do. They ask forgiveness from people that they've been bitter towards or who are bitter towards them. They offer forgiveness freely because suddenly those things that seem so important are no longer important. With crystal clarity, they see that I've got to do some things and set some relationships right before my time on this earth ends. Now, I'm assuming and and more than likely you have more than 30 days to live. But the secret to really living is to ask, what would I do if I only had 30 days left on the planet? When you ask this question, then it shows you a couple of things. First, you'll realize what's important. That's what happened to these friends. They knew this was their last chance to get their friend to Jesus. They were thinking, Jesus won't be here tomorrow. We can't assume. We were talking about this in my men's group around our table this morning. That that we assume we have a tomorrow. Don't assume you have a tomorrow These guys didn't. Jesus is not going to be here. He needs Jesus. We're going to go today. I'm sure they they weren't thinking about, oh, we got to pay for this roof while they were doing it. Because I think they were thinking, it's just a roof. Our friend needs Jesus. It's only a roof. A roof can be replaced. What happens to us, though, is we get in a position where we have all of these possessions and we think, I can't do without that. My possessions become more important than people. And I actually let my possessions keep me from helping someone else get to Christ. These guys realized what was important. And once you realize what's important, then you've got to remove the obstacles. You cut out everything else. The, the roof was an obstacle. And they got rid of it. And you have obstacles in your life right now that are keeping you from seeing Jesus Christ. Now, is a roof a bad thing? No. Unless it keeps you from coming to Christ. My to-do list rarely has bad things on it. I I don't sit around and think, ooh, what sin can I commit today? No. My to-do list usually has good things on it. But you know what else is usually missing from my to-do list? The most important things. And I'm going to tell you a little secret how you can know what is most important. The most important things in your life don't come with a bunch of bells and whistles. The most important things in your life are not screaming for your attention. The most important things in your life are not jumping up and down saying, Look at me, look at me, you need to pay attention to me. The most important things in your life are silent. Things like tucking your kids in bed every night. Things like taking a walk with your spouse. Not to discuss your calendar or figure out when you're going to make repairs to your house. But just to spend time together. Things like spending time with Jesus. The most important things in your life are probably not on your to-do list. And they're not screaming. They wait for you to slow down and create margin so that they can fit in that margin. And it's your responsibility to create that margin. They'll go unnoticed. And, And you know the most important things you probably will never be applauded for. Until you get to heaven and God says, you paid attention. Good job. The really important things in your life are silent and you'll miss them if your life's too crowded. So you're going to have to do something drastic today to restore your passion. Second thing, expect the unexpected. Now, all of us need to make plans and prioritize and all of that stuff. That's great. 
We need to pray and ask God to give us wisdom. And the Bible says he'll grant us wisdom. But when you make plans and they don't work out, then go with the flow. You need to lighten up your attitude and say, God, I give it to you. That's what happened with these guys. They had their plans. They knew where Jesus was going to be. They knew when Jesus was going to be there. And they got there and it was so stinking crowded they couldn't get to Jesus. They could have said, dude, we tried. It's the thought that counts. See you later. Have a great life. They didn't do that. They just changed their plans. Whenever you, uh, your plans change, it's passion for doing what's right that makes you become creative and figure out a different way. Okay, this way was blocked. Let's go back and let's figure out. God, did we miss something? God, show us something else. Just try something different and you'll get creative. These guys got creative, went through the roof. When they lowered their friend down in front of Jesus, Jesus did something very unexpected. Did you catch it? You probably did. When Jesus saw the friend's faith, the friends on the roof, when he saw their faith, he looked at the paralytic and he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, the whole reason they brought him to Jesus was because he was paralyzed. I can see the dudes looking down through the hole. No! Heal him! And I'm sure the dude on the mat's going, um, um, Jesus, I know you're, you're God's son. I know you got all this power. You're missing it. Is that what he did? No, he just accepted the blessing. Jesus healed him spiritually first before he ever did the physical thing because which one mattered more, spiritual or physical healing? Because when Jesus healed him, did the dude eventually die? And let me give you a quick little secret here. We pray all the time for physical healing. For family members, for you. Your most desperate need is spiritual healing. Because even if God heals you physically, you're going to die physically and you're going to stand before God. What you desperately need is spiritual healing. Jesus took care of that first. But then he said, but it's real easy for me. This, this is what I think he was thinking. It was real easy for me to say, oh, your sins are forgiven. Nobody can see that except my Father in heaven. But to show you that I'm a dude of power, get up. Do you imagine it was quiet in the room? This was a dude paralyzed since birth. There are no muscles on these legs. Jesus says, get up. I imagine right there, some type of muscles came forward because it's skin and bones. He's going to stand up and be like a little deer that's just born. That's not power. It says he got his mat and walked off, praising God. And the people said, uh, we've seen remarkable things today. That's an understatement. When's the last time that because of your walk with Christ, someone said, we've seen remarkable things today. We've lost our passion. God knows what's best for us. We trust him. See, when we make all of our plans and, and then problems come, we get frustrated, we get stressed. We begin to lose our passion. And you know, when I'm stressed and frustrated, it's this huge warning sign that I'm trying to control things that I'm not supposed to control. This came up in my men's group too. There are things in life that we can control. There are other things that we can't control. And you will go nuts trying to control the things that God never intended for you to control. There's some stuff that God doesn't want you to control. He allows problems to remind us that we're not God and we need someone bigger than us. So let those things go and trust God. Now, here's the thing. When, when God shows up in your situation, it doesn't usually look like God. 
These guys are taking their friend to meet Jesus that day and a crowded room where they can't even get in the door does not look like a God thing. It didn't look like God at all. It looked like a problem, but God turned it into an opportunity. They began to change their plans and Jesus did something unexpected. That's because we have an unpredictable God. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, God's ways are higher than our ways. We cannot comprehend them. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We cannot comprehend them. So we can't even control our own children. I mean, yeah, you can spank them all that, but you can't control them. You just try to control your children and watch what they'll do. They'll eventually buck that the reins and they'll do something just to show you you are not in control. They come out of the womb not in control. There's certain things you can't control. And one of them you can't control is God in the way that he shows up. He's an unpredictable God. So the best thing you can do is say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to expect you to do something that I don't expect. Third thing, create God's space. This, this is awesome to me. Because in verse 19 it says these men are looking down. And they actually create space where there's not space. Right in front of Jesus. They couldn't get in through the door, so they go up through the roof. This is awesome. Had we planned a little bit more, actually, we wouldn't have done this. But it would have been really cool to peel back the roof right about now and, and find some space. Because don't you know the people are going? And then a dude, a, a paralyzed dude, comes down on a mat. They're backing up. I don't know if what he's got is contagious. I don't want to be paralyzed. And they move back and they get this space right in front of Jesus. In the same way, in the middle of your crowded life, if you're going to be a passionate person, if you're going to reflect who God created you to be, you're going to have to create some space where there is no space in your life so that God can operate. Jesus even did it. Look at this verse in, uh, in Mark. Look how he did it. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, Well, let's go someplace else. Now, I love this because even Jesus, the Son of God, had to create space at times. Several times it says he went off where nobody was so he could hang out with God. If the Son of God needs time with God, how much more do you and I need time with God? And then, then the funny thing is, the disciples come up and they're, they're going, Jesus, J Jesus, whoa, whoa. You don't have time to pray, Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. What they're saying is, you're disappointing people, Jesus. You're out here wasting time and people need you. There are moms that have walked all through the countryside to get here. There are children that are sick. There are people dying, Jesus. You don't have time to pray. And Jesus says, well, let's go someplace else. Because physical healing of all those people, solving their problems wasn't the reason he came. Spiritual health, that's the reason that he came. Spiritual life, resurrection where there's dead people bound for hell, that's why God came. The secret to maintaining your passion in a crowded world is to remove yourself from time to time, make some space so that you can hear God. Because the most important person in your life will not jump up and down and scream and demand your attention. Who does that besides your, your husband? I'm kidding. That was a joke. Your children do that, right? Look at me! Mom, 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 mom. Right? That's a dumb commercial. Hi. When she finally looks, hi. God doesn't do that. God says, when you grow up, you'll make time for me. 
because I'm what's most important to you. It's your place to create space. Now, let me tell you real quickly how to make space for God. This is a, this little formula that, that I go back to over and over and over again whenever my passion starts to wane. Give God the first day of every week. Make it a priority. Some of you are not passionate about God because, quite honestly, you're not passionate about church. And I understand not being passionate about religion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going someplace where you are fed, where you are coming into the presence of God, where you worship with a bunch of other people and you are spiritually lifted up. Make that a priority. God wants you to do it once a week. And really here, we make it real easy. It's an hour. And it starts at 11. Um, People tell me... Now, by my own choice last night, I stayed up late. And then I got up at 5.30 and I fixed breakfast for the men. And Cindy fixed breakfast for the men this morning. and, and, And I'm here and I'm going to take a nap this afternoon, Lord willing. And then I'm going to have small group. But how hard is it to come for one hour to meet with God once a week? You need to make that a priority. God says if you'll, if you'll make him a priority at the first week, he'll bless the rest of the week. Second thing is the first part of every day. What we're trying to get you to do with this one month to live book is spend 15 minutes a day hanging out with God. And Jesus did it in the, in the morning. But whenever you're the freshest, a friend of mine, he does it about noon or one o'clock. Because the dude just can't function in the morning. He's a vegetable in the morning. But when he wakes up, he gives God the best part of his day. Me, if I don't spend time with God before I leave the house, all of a sudden my life becomes really crowded. And before I know it, it's 10 o'clock and I haven't spent time with God. And so I have to give God the morning. And, and God expands my day when I do that. This is even scriptural. Proverbs ten twenty seven says, Reverence for God adds hours to your day. If you don't have enough time in your day, you know what you need to do? Is give God a little bit. And he blesses the rest of the day. Next thing is the first portion of my income. Give God the first part of your finances. In the scripture that's called the tithe. 10%. It's a starting point. And God says if, you, if I'm not first place in your finances. I'm really not first place in your life. And so you give a portion back. And the amazing thing. God has the strangest math. He adds time to your day when you give him a little bit of your, your day. He adds time to your week when you give him the first part of the week. He adds money. His math is, is different than, than anybody else's math I've ever seen. When you honor God with your, uh, with your income, the first part, the first fruits, he will bless you in ways that you didn't see coming. You need more money? Then you, you give God a little bit of it. Then you give God the first consideration in every decision. You ever bought something without praying about it? Did it ever come back to be to haunt you and not bless you? You bought a house without praying about it. You bought a car without praying about it. You bought something, whatever it is, without praying about it. And then all of a sudden you get into the payments or whatever and you go, oh, no. You never even thought to consider God. God says if you'll ask for wisdom beforehand, he'll bless you and give you supernatural wisdom to make decisions. What we do, though, is we rush out and we buy whatever we want to buy. And then we say, oh, God, get me out of my mess. And God said, you didn't consult me in the first place. So I'm going to let you suffer through the consequences of not consulting me. God says, if you want to make wise decisions, consult me first. All right. The last thing is keep a constant reminder. When I do these things, I ask the tough questions. I live this one month to live lifestyle. It's real important for me to have a constant reminder. And and I get this from um, Luke 5, 24. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, I'll tell you, 
get up, take your mat and go home. That's real interesting to me because did the man need his mat, his little paralyzed mat anymore? Do you need it anymore? Jesus could have said, take your mat, throw it in the trash because you don't need it anymore. He said, get your mat and take it home. That's really strange to me. What I think Jesus was saying in the whole process of picking up his mat, I think it was a reminder. You used to need this thing until you met me. Now you don't need it anymore. So I think God wants to give us a reminder. So what we've given you today is you got one of these bracelets. This is the technical way to open it. Use your teeth. If you don't want to use yours and somebody else, just stick it over and, and ask them to bite it. We're going to put this on. I'm not a bracelet person. The only piece of jewelry I wear is my wedding ring, but I'm going to wear this for 30 days because I need a reminder. It's real easy to go back to a crowded lifestyle. There is uh, on here it says one month to live.com. There's all kinds of, of um, devotionals and, and stories and illustrations that you can go. There's even a place you can go on there and blog about what God's doing in your life. This is just a constant reminder over the next 30 days that we need to be asking the question, what would I do if I had one month to live? Now, Christianity is full of symbols. Baptism is a reminder, it's a symbol that I used to follow my own ways, but when I was buried under the water, I'm identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. When I came out of the water, I'm saying that I'm no longer alive. My old life has died. I'm alive to a new person. Jesus Christ is the leader of my life. That's what baptism is. The Lord's Supper is a symbol. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ died. We, we did this just a week or two ago. We, when we take the bread, Jesus said, when, whenever you take the bread, remember that my body was broken for you. When you drink the juice, remember that my blood was spilled so that you might be adopted into the kingdom of God. It's a reminder. My wedding ring is a reminder of a ceremony that happened years ago where I stood with Janie before witnesses and before God and said, I'm going to be faithful to you for the rest of my life. And I wear that ring as a reminder. This is just going to be a reminder. Some of you last week said, I'm going to take the 30-day challenge. And this is a reminder. And you may, who knows, whenever I've worn these things, sometimes people ask you about it. You may get an opportunity to say, well, our church is going through this deal. Check it out, onemonthlive.com. Or go to our website, nlccp.com. We're, we're asking, what would be different about my life if I only had 30 days left to live? I love the phrase where it says, immediately, Luke 5, 25. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. That word, immediately, speaks to us today because we want to start today uncrowding our lives, making a little margin, making a little space for God so that you'll live a life of no regrets. If you continue at the pace that you're going right now, your last breath will be a breath of regret. But if you'll make some space, decide what's important, spend a little bit of time each day on those most important things at the end of your life, you can die a happy man or a happy woman knowing that you gave it all and that your legacy will live on after you. So, immediately means I'm going to say it now, I'm going to do it now, I'm going to give it now. Some of you have not talked to a family member in months or maybe years. And it may not even be appropriate for you to show up on their doorstep today. Maybe the first step is a letter. Some of you need to ask for forgiveness. Some of you need to offer forgiveness. And you need to start today. 
Don't put off until tomorrow because you don't know that you have tomorrow. Watch this video and then we'll wrap up the service. I was here this Sunday that um, Pastor Kerry introduced the One Month to Live in his book. Um, I heard him and we all think that we're going to live forever and the one month to live. I heard what he was saying and I appreciate it, but really didn't sink in to me until Monday morning. I was um, at a bakery. It was 7.45 in the morning. I was by myself sitting, having a cup of coffee, reading a book, and I heard some ruckus going on behind me. So I turned and looked over my shoulder, and there was four men with ski masks and guns holding up the place. I immediately hopped up and ran to this patio door, thinking, you know, run, and the patio door was locked. And the men started screaming, hit the floor, hit the floor. So I hit the floor. Right then, when I hit the floor, the one month to live sunk in. Um, I was more frightened at that point than I'd ever been before. I'm still thinking, run, run, get out of this place. So from the floor, I'm trying to unlock the door and push on it. One of the men with a gun comes up to me, points the gun at me and says, if you move, I'm going to hurt you. So of course, everything is, I'm being real still, but everything is flashing before me. My children, things I haven't said to them, you know, still things that I wanted to do with my life. It was very still. The men scurried about the building, and in the store, a buzzer started going off. Um, the men congregated together, shot their gun, and then ran out. Um, no one was hurt. Um, they did go up to two businessmen and take their wallets, but they didn't take anything of mine. My purse was right there. They didn't touch anything I had. I have never been in a situation where I totally felt angels surrounding me more than that day. Um, I was very angry that I couldn't run out that door, but hindsight, um, from the floor, when I looked over to the front of the store, the, the, one of the ski mask men right across from the door had a rifle in his hand. And so I just know that if the worst thing I could have done was run out that door, because he probably would have shot me. Um, so there was definitely an angel in that situation that kept that door locked. The next day, the man from the bakery called to see if I was okay and um, how I was doing. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm fine, but I really want to thank the person that set off that alarm in the restaurant because it's what scared the men away. And he said, well, coincidentally, we have no security system inside or outside, and we have no alarm. The buzzer that you were hearing in the store was the bread in the oven was ready to be taken out. Um, so there were just angels. It was the most frightening situation I've ever been in. But hindsight, I truly feel like, I, I mean, God's presence was over me and there were angels all around protecting me. When I first heard Carrie's challenge, I didn't think it really applied to me. We all think that we'll live forever and we're safe in our little bubble. But definitely when I was laying on the floor of a bakery and a man was standing over me with a gun, um, the one month to live truly, truly affected me and hit me where I, how I needed to live. So don't wait till a gun is pointed to your head. Just listen to Carrie Shook and take his challenge and live your life to the fullest. Chris and Carrie Shook. Chris is, uh, Carrie is the pastor at Fellowship of the Woodlands and he's the one that wrote the book, One Month to Live. 
And so I, I think you get the message. You don't want to be in that situation um, where your life flashes in front of your eyes to make some wise choices. You can start today living a life of no regrets. So would you bow your heads for just a minute? Here's the challenge today. I want you just to ask God, what is it you need to do? What changes do you need to make in your life so that you can begin living a life filled with passion that glorifies God and and gives you a sense of fulfillment? What is it, God, I need to do differently? Just ask Him that. Second thing I want you to ask God silently in your prayer is, with whom do I need to make amends? Who's offended with me? Who am I offended with that I need to talk to today? Some of you, as you sit there, you're you're realizing that if you were to die today, you wouldn't be in heaven because you do not know Jesus Christ. If the Bible is true, if what Jesus said is true, you wouldn't be in heaven because you do not have a relationship with him. The Bible says very clearly that if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And, And we say it very simply here. If you'll ask Jesus to forgive your sins, you acknowledge you're a sinner, that you don't deserve heaven. You acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross in in your place. And you receive what he did. We say, you ask God to forgive your sins and be the leader of your life. The Bible says if you'll do that, you'll be adopted into the family of God. And that there will be this rejoicing in heaven because another lost sinner will have come home. You can pray that right now. God, please forgive my sins and lead my life. Father, would you change our hearts and our lives so that when we do get to our last day, whenever that is, we won't have any regrets. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your registration cards, if you would, on the back. give you a couple of options. Today, the points were do something drastic, expect the unexpected, create God's space, keep a constant reminder. Which of those four do you need to do? What, what jumped out at you most that you need to make application? If all we do is we meet here for an hour each week and everybody leaves the same way they came in, we're wasting time. But God's word is meant to be applied. So what is it you need to do?